0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Today, January 6th, first Sunday of the year, I wanted to do something a little different from going through the book of Titus. As you'll notice, if you look at your bulletin there, there's a title of the sermon. It's called Examine Yourself, and there's an exclamation point there. And the key text, or my launching pad, is going to be 2 Corinthians 13.5. So, we will start out by reading 2 Corinthians 13 5. A discipline that I've had, and I've told you this before. Um, since when I became a Christian, uh, somebody influenced me early on, and I can't even remember who it was. Oh, Children's Church, sorry. We have Children's Church. Newsflash, the kids were panicking. Oh, I got to hear Pastor Cliff today? Yikes, no. Uh, so if you uh, want to be a part of Children's Church, fifth grade on down, you can go ahead and meet back in the lobby there. And Alex is our teacher of the day as they continue actually about wrapping up the attributes of God. So they'll, the kids will be in there. God is sovereign, I think, is the topic of the day. And then we'll be back with the kiddos next week. So going back to uh, the lesson of the day, examine yourself. I thought it would be good to... Kick off the new year, as I, you know I quoted that passage a little earlier out of the Bible where we're reminded from Scripture that God says He has new mercies for us every single day. Uh, new mercies every morning, day by day. Every day is a, a new day really for God, if you know him personally, a clean slate, uh, an opportunity to move forward. That's part of the Christian life. That's part of the great hope of being a Christian you don't have to live in the past and mire and mallow in the past, or wallow in the past, uh, moving forward. And so, beginning of the new year, I just thought it'd be good to take take time, stop, reflect, uh, examine ourselves individually before God, and in light of the new year, in light of the future, in light of running this race, and you know, even where Paul said, "You are the Christian life is a race," and when you're running a race, whether it's the 100-yard dash or a marathon, you've got to look forward. It's not looking back over your shoulder. You are looking forward. And so Christians need to be forward-oriented. And as we're looking upon a new year, 2013, thought a great passage to get us started and to really get us focused would be 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Let's go ahead and look at that verse. So this is kind of a, a New Year's resolution kind of theme, but not really resolutions are are a little different. Of Here's all the things I want to do. Like, okay, I'm going to stop eating all that junk food and you do it for two weeks and then you start eating the junk food again. That didn't last long. But uh, So I don't want to talk about resolutions as much as examining yourself in light of the new year. And it's a good discipline for Christians to do. I did last week, I taught young adult Sunday school class and the title of that lesson in Sunday school last week was Examine Yourself, 2 Corinthians 13.5. So if you were in that Sunday school class, you might be thinking, oh, not this again. Well, it's not the same thing. It's, most of it is almost entirely different in terms of the content. So uh, just wait and find out. Let's go ahead and look at 2 Corinthians thirteen five, where the Apostle Paul is closing this letter to the Corinthians. Paul wrote like four or five letters that we know of to the Corinthians. Two of them ended up as inspired letters in your New Testament. Uh, he planted this church. The city of Corinth was as pagan as could be. It was probably worse than San Francisco and Amsterdam and any other horrible city you can think of that's secularized and immoral combined. Corinth was pretty bad. Yet the gospel uh, made headway there. And the apostle Paul preached there and saw a church come together. And he actually planted that church. And he pastored in this church for about a year and a half. Did a church plant. And then he stayed in touch with this church as he sought to raise up leadership and plant other churches. And when Paul uh, left a couple of times, uh, the, the church of Corinth went sour, and they compromised at many levels. So, really, the two letters, First and Second Corinthians, are confrontational letters from the Apostle Paul. Second Corinthians, all thirteen chapters, very interesting because it's really one thing. Because the Corinthians, Paul's church, many of the saints that Paul gave the gospel to and got saved through his ministry, this is their pastor and their elder and when he's got behind his back they are criticizing him and they are ripping him to shreds calling his entire ministry his integrity his reputation into into question and this went on for a couple of years and this broke paul's heart and so but finally there's some resolution and second corinthians chapter 13 is part of that closing the door and bringing resolution to this conflict where almost an entire congregation turned their back on their very faithful pastor. Um, and so he says this, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5. Test yourselves. So he's talking to his sheep, to professing believers. Most of these folks he probably knew by name. And he gives them a closing exhortation. Test yourselves. Now 2 Corinthians, what he has been going on for 12 Chapters is he was defending himself as a pastor, as a legitimate pastor, elder, and apostle in light of their false critiques. And he wasn't really defending himself as much as he was, get this, defending the truth. They had wrong information about their pastor. They had wrong thoughts about the apostle. Uh, And so he's defending himself in light of the truth for 12 chapters. It's amazing if you read it. This is actually one of... uh, pastors' favorite books. You know, when they get down in the dumps and feel rejected and whatever, they always go and gravitate to Second Corinthians twelve, because they can identify with, with the Apostle Paul. Well if boy, if they're going to pick on Paul then I guess they can pick on anybody. Um, and then Paul kind of turns the tables in chapter thirteen at the end of this letter and he stops defending himself. And he reminds these Christians, these self-professed Christians, boy you you people, you need to turn your um, lasers and your cannons and your guns and your spotlights off of me and other people and turn them on yourself. So that's the context. That's, he's wrapping up. Quit, quit judging me, quit judging other people, quit judging your fellow Christians. And you know who you need to judge first? Is yourself. And so that's the context of 2 Corinthians 13:5. So here he gives two, two commands. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. That's the new American Standard Translation. Test yourselves. To see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Okay, Uh, Verse 5, test yourself is one word, examine yourself is another word. So he uses two Greek verbs. They are synonymous, but he's trying to say the same thing and he's being emphatic. Test yourselves, examine yourselves. In the sermon title, note that I made it singular. Examine yourself. Singular with an exclamation point. Why did I put an exclamation point in my sermon title? Well, because... The New American Standard has it in verse 5 in their translation of Paul's command. And I think it's legitimate. This is an imperative. This is a command. This is a priority. Paul is dogmatic here. He is emphatic. He repeats it twice. He puts the verb at the beginning of the sentence. Being emphatic. Test yourself. Test yourself. Test yourself. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Another way to say it is judge yourself. Evaluate yourself. Diagnose yourself. Honestly, look at yourself. Observe yourself. Look in the mirror and be honest about yourself. Those are all synonyms. That's what he's talking about. That's what he means. Quit examining me and examine yourself. So that's kind of the closing crescendo of a challenge he gives them. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves as professing Christians? He means that Jesus Christ is in you. If if you're a real Christian, Jesus lives in you through the Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit of God lives in you, then you should be living a certain way thinking a certain way, and have clear certain fruits in your life that are evident and manifest. If the Spirit of God is truly in you, the same su- supernatural Spirit of God who created the world out of nothing, who raised Jesus from the dead, you talk about power. That same Holy Spirit lives in you, Christian. And it should make a difference of the Holy Spirit living in you. And in light of that reality, examine yourself. Test yourself. Evaluate yourself. With respect to what? Test yourself regarding the faith. Test yourself regarding your relationship to Jesus Christ. Test yourself by the standard of the Holy Spirit living in you or not. So this is a command, but it's a command to professing Christians. Do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? And what he means there, if you honestly evaluate yourself to see if you are in the faith as a Christian, if you fail the test... Failing the test means you examine yourself honestly and you came to realize, wow, I don't think I am a Christian. I failed the test. Here I thought I was a Christian and I don't think I am. This is amazing. Um, Some of you might not even be able to relate to this concept for different reasons. Oh, you mean I'm supposed to judge myself? Or evaluate myself? Or you mean I'm supposed to question whether I'm a Christian or not? Because there, there are theologies and denominations and books... Continually being written and pastors continually preaching that the Christian should never question their salvation. I, I hear that a lot. That's a, an entire brand and emphasis of a viewpoint of Christianity out there. That you should never question yourself because they think that it actually undermines the promise of the security of the believer. And they will literally tell their people, and I've heard it time and time again, don't question your salvation. And don't you don't need to evaluate yourself. You, you said the prayer when you're in third grade and poof, don't ever question it again and you're going to heaven. Um, that's not true. Right, right here, we know it's not true. This is just one verse of many verses all throughout the Bible that it is appropriate for Christians to evaluate themselves to see whether they are in their faith. Now, to kind of help us practically speaking, I came up with six points to help us evaluate ourselves. So keep in mind today, what we're focusing on is evaluating yourself. So take your finger... That maybe you're used to pointing at someone else and bring it this way and point at yourself. Or what do they say when you're pointing one finger at somebody else, you're three, you're pointing at yourself? But anyway, today we're looking at ourselves. So let's go ahead together and look at some principles of how we can biblically evaluate ourselves to see where we are at with God and with the faith. And we'll start with point number one there. Uh, Judge yourself with regularity. Judge yourself with regularity. And I get this from the tenses of the verbs that Paul used in 2 Corinthians 13:5. They're present tense verbs, both of these commands. Present tense, and so the, that means it's present tense. It is a continual, ongoing discipline that you should be doing. So it's not just a, a one-time thing and then you stop. Oh, I evaluated myself five years ago. I evaluated myself when I got saved when I was seven years old 20 years ago. I don't need to do it again. No, present tense commands... uh And so that means this is to be an ongoing, regular discipline of your life. So actually, this is really a Christian discipline. A Christian discipline. A discipline is something that you incorporate in your Christian life that you do and practice and evaluate on a regular, ongoing basis as you walk the Christian life. Walking towards God, glory, and heaven. And so, evaluating yourself and evaluating myself should be a regular discipline of my Christian life. Evaluating ourselves. Test yourself. Examine yourself. So we need to be judging ourselves with regularity. I asked the young folks last week, so in light of this command, when do we, as Christians, do we evaluate ourselves and and when do we evaluate ourselves? And they gave some answers that were legit. Um at a funeral. Right? Somebody dies and everybody's there and it's kind of morose and it's really sad. And then you are confronted with the reality of thinking about death. And sometimes you actually think about your own life. Wow, how many more days or months do I have on this earth? And what am I doing? And what's going to happen to me when I die? And we do self-evaluation. And that's actually explicitly stated in the book of Ecclesiastes. That funerals are better than parties because they bring us into stark reality. The death could come at any time. So they threw that out there. When do we evaluate ourselves? Uh, when we go to funerals. So maybe maybe we should go to funerals more often. Because um, every time I go to a funeral, whether the person was a believer or not a believer, I'm thinking about life and death, the priorities in life and then my own life. Uh, another one they threw out there was when bad things happen, tragedies, right? Uh, you got a hurricane or whatever it is and it takes uh, thousands and thousands of lives and there's devastation or uh, a human-created uh travesty with murder and those kind of things. And the, you, you stop and you pause as you hear about it and you think about life and death and the implications in your own life. And so that is a time of evaluating, right? But those aren't regular. Those are sporadic. They're here and there and uh maybe not as frequently as we need to stop and pause and evaluate ourselves. Or sometimes just trials in life that come our way. We'll stop and evaluate. Think about it. Or maybe when we're caught in a sin, we got caught, we got busted. It's like, oh, yeah. I need to stop and evaluate my life. But again, this is not routine. This is not regular enough. These are just kind of in crisis moments. And according to Paul, 2 Corinthians 13.5, it is clear this isn't just in crisis moments once in a blue moon. This is an ongoing, regular discipline of the Christian life that should be routine. So then I asked uh, the young folk, when should we as Christians, in light of this verse, be evaluating ourselves? And somebody said, regularly and in our prayer life. And I thought, man, that is a great answer. That is the answer. We should be evaluating ourselves regularly in an ongoing manner. I was thinking, I was kind of kicking myself because I wrote a book in 2006, uh, Christian Living, and it was on the disciplines of the Christian life. Uh, 11 virtues or whatever, 11 disciplines, and one of them is not examine yourself. I need to rewrite the book. But anyway, because that needs to be in there. Evaluate yourself regularly, routinely, on an ongoing basis. Um, And this is not just a New Testament discipline created by the Apostle Paul. Jesus basically said the same thing. When the the Apostle said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. How do we pray? We don't know how to pray. And Jesus said to these men who were raised in the, the Jewish synagogue under Old Testament Scriptures, here is the priority of prayer. Here is how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts. Wow, what is that? That's self-evaluation. Forgive us our debt. You can't evaluate your own life and conclude there are certain sins in your life if you didn't examine yourself honestly and with biblical scrutiny. So inherent in Jesus' command about our prayer life is we need to regularly be examining ourselves. Forgive us our debt. Forgive God my sins. And this is a prayer to be prayed daily because that's what Jesus said. So, uh, Paul didn't make this up. This is in the teaching of Jesus. This comes right out of the Old Testament. And every saint is called to obey and implement this discipline in their life. Judge yourself with regularity. Evaluate yourself. So here's the question, here's the challenge. When was the last time you thoroughly, comprehensively, systematically, deliberately evaluated yourself as a Christian before God in light of the Christian life? Don't answer out loud. But think about it in your own heart, and if it's been a while, wow, maybe it's time to do it. J. Vernon McGee, or J. Vernon McGee, the America's pastor from the 1960s, Dallas guy, great preacher, uh, in his commentary on this verse, he said, We should evaluate ourselves as Christians at least three times a year. Now, I don't know why he said three times a year. It's totally arbitrary, but at least it was more than once. That's okay. I would say we should evaluate ourselves continually all the time. Uh, in light of the present tense. So we need to judge ourselves with regularity. Okay, let's go on to number two. Uh, we need to make God's standard the priority. Make God's standard the priority. Well, how do we evaluate ourselves? That's not easy to do. Because you know what? I I, I confessed last week, true confessions. Here's another confession. I'm kind of prejudiced and biased towards myself. I like myself. In the words of Solieri and Amadeus, I like myself. Um, so many times we are not honest with ourselves so actually this is very challenging when scripture tells us to examine ourselves and evaluate ourselves and then come objectively and then come to an objective conclusion and to do something about it wow very difficult this is this goes against basic human nature that's why we need a Bibli- we need the right standard if we're going to evaluate ourselves so that's the question here is what is the standard by which we use to evaluate ourselves which mirror are we going to use they have different mirrors at different places. You know, at the circus and Disneyland, they got one that makes you look short and fat. they got one that makes you look really weird. They've got one that makes you look tall and skinny. Liar! You know that mirror? And so the question is, what mirror are we going to use to evaluate ourselves so we're getting an objective analysis of where we truly are before God? What is the standard? There's only one objective standard. That's what I'm getting at here with make God's standard the priority. We have to use God's standard. The only standard to do that today for us, the objective standard, is the Word of God. It is Scripture. That is our standard. Right here. So we evaluate ourselves in light of Scripture. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I could read a lot of verses out of the Bible. Uh, there's some really good ones in Psalms where the psalmist especially Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Especially Psalm 119 just goes on and on and on, reminding us that the standard by which we evaluate ourselves honestly is the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Law of God, uh, the Revelation of God. And 2 Timothy 3.16 basically says the same thing. We use Scripture to evaluate ourselves honestly. Because otherwise, if we're not using God's unchanging standard of Scripture, we're going to come up with our own standards that are wrong, illegitimate, biased, and give us a wrong evaluation and a wrong conclusion and a wrong diagnosis and really won't do us any good at all. As a matter of fact, we will undermine what we're trying to accomplish. Here are some basic common standards that human beings use, and we're all susceptible to this in trying to evaluate ourselves. Uh, we, use, we use our own opinion as the standard. Don't we? We do. Our own opinion. Our own opinion. Our own perspective, which is usually fallen, short-sighted, myopic. Doesn't have, it's finite. It doesn't have all the information. That's why our opinion can't possibly be the standard our opinion is wrong many times so our opinion our preferences sometimes we use as the standard the music should be this way why because this is my preference the color of the carpet should be this way why because of my preference Uh, here's another very common standard we use in evaluating comparing ourselves with other people and we do it in positive ways and negative ways here's how that works when we use the standard of other people. And usually it's people we really don't know what those people are like. We aren't a fly on the wall watching how they live in their house 24-7, so we really don't know what's going on. But but we have a facade that we're exposed and allowed to see every once in a while. And so actually what we're seeing is not reflecting reality behind closed doors. But that's the standard we're going to use anyway. It's this false, fictitious facade of a standard by comparing ourselves with other people, another family, another person. And there's positive and negative to that. So uh, what I mean by positive and negative is uh, the negative ways we can find some. You can always find somebody more messed up than you are, can't you? Usually they got bigger problems. They're a bigger compromiser. They're a bigger thief. They're a bigger liar. They're a big, they're uglier, whatever it is. That is so easy to do. That's why you cannot compare yourself using another person. That is an illegitimate, corrupt standard. So to make yourself feel better. Then there's the opposite is uh, looking at the greener grass. And evaluating yourself by the greener grass way over there. And concluding that, oh, we're not where we should be. Or, oh man, we are, we fall so short. Or, oh, we are pathetic. Or, oh, we are so incompetent. Or, oh, we are way out in left field. And you're coming to those conclusions by a fictitious standard of the glories of somebody else's household that you see. When many times that just doesn't reflect reality. So we can't be comparing ourselves with other people. Scripture, the apostle Paul, condemn that by the way do not be comparing we do not compare ourselves with others that's what he said and don't compare yourselves by yourselves don't do that that is misleading it is fallacious it's not helpful Uh, so these are standards we commonly use comparing ourselves with other people by we compare sometimes we use the standard of our own experience Uh, we use the standard of how we feel or how something makes me feel we use the standard of Maybe religious denomination or background and we're limited by that, but that's, our again, our only experience. We use tradition as a standard illegitimately many times. And even, unfortunately, we will use the culture or the world as a standard. Well, the world's doing this, therefore the church should be doing this. That's why more and more churches are taking on the environmentalism crusade and even putting it on the home page of their websites and even in their doctrinal statements. Uh, And I'm talking about the secular humanistic evolutionary view of environmentalism that has no business in the church why are we doing that the church hasn't been doing it for 2,000 years well because the world is doing it well that doesn't make it legitimate so the standard is the word of God so look at 2nd Timothy three, sixteen and 17 just a wonderful verse uh, and this just reminds us that scripture and this includes all 66 books of the Bible comes from God it is supernatural it is a living word it's God's thoughts put down in writing for us that the Holy Spirit of God uses to change our thinking and to change us as people, to inform our thinking. Scripture, the Bible, that's what He's talking about. And it is multi-dimensional, it is diverse. 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. Literally what that means is all Scripture came from the mouth of God. God breathed, Scripture is the breath of God written down. So that should be your view of Scripture. What is the Bible? These are God's thoughts. This is what He thinks. The eternal God of the universe. This is what He thinks. Wow. Then that should have... I care what God thinks. That should have an impact. So all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's His thoughts put on paper. And the Scripture is profitable for the following. We should use Scripture for teaching. So that's why we preach and teach. And we get biblical information which helps us grow and feeds our soul. So that's a positive thing. We use Scripture also for reproof of how to confront sin or reprove somebody and tell them, oh, you're doing this wrong, you need to do this right. And we also use Scripture for correction, which is also part of admonishing somebody and fixing their behavior or maybe they're thinking the wrong way. Addressing falsehood. supplanting it with truth. And also for training in righteousness. And that's a positive for discipleship and helping people grow and pointing them in the right direction. So, uh, this is what we use scripture for. Verse 17. In order that, for the purpose of, we do these things with scripture in a fourfold manner in order that the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God, every true believer may be adequate or thoroughly furnished or totally mature or have everything they need in life as a Christian in terms of spiritual virtues. Wow. Scripture is sufficient is what that means. And you will be equipped for every good work. So Scripture is God's standard. It's God's perfect standard. And it's the only standard because it's a sufficient supernatural standard. So the standard by which we judge ourselves is Scripture. So that's why many times we see the psalmist going to Scripture, especially Psalm 119 and Psalm 19, and he's reading Scripture and then he's comparing himself to Scripture. And when he's honest like David, he realizes, man, I fall woefully short. God, forgive me. Forgive me in light of what Your law requires of me. Lord, And so he used the Scripture to evaluate himself. We need to do the same thing. Uh, We need to make God's standard the priority. So we need to judge ourselves with regularity. We need to make God's standard the priority. And then number three, when we do evaluate ourselves, judge ourselves, examine ourselves, and we use the standard of Scripture to do it, what do we focus on? What are our priorities? What are we looking for? What are we trying to evaluate anyway? My waistline, the wrinkles around my eyes. I'm losing my hair. Whatever it is, superficial things. I mean, what what is the priority in examining yourself? Well, Paul helps us here. Uh, Number three, focus on areas of spirituality. And in Second Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse five, Paul makes that clear two times in little two phrases that he uses: test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. So the standard is where you start is. Are you in the faith? And one thing that that definitely means is, are you in Christ? Are you a Christian? Are you truly born again? I think every Christian at times needs to keep asking that question every once in a while. Do I really know God? Am I really a Christian? Especially for those of you who grow up in Christian homes. Going to church your whole life. Christian parents, Christian friends, Christian bubble, Christian fishbowl, your whole life, got baptized, said the prayer when I was three, got baptized when I was five, grew up, and then there comes a point in your life where you move out of the house and then all of a sudden, wow, is that faith my parents' faith or is it my own faith? This is so common and routine. I see it all the time as a pastor, especially in the baptisms that I do. I can't tell you how many testimonies of baptisms that I have heard in 20 years at different churches where. Somebody says, well, I grew up in the church and I was baptized when I was in third grade, but I want to get baptized again now that I'm in college. Or now that I'm in high school and I went to the high school retreat. I was baptized in second grade uh, and I didn't really understand what I was doing in second grade or third grade or fifth grade or seventh grade, but now that I'm 32, I really understand what I'm doing. That is true. That is not out of the ordinary. That is very common and I understand why. So uh, those of you who grew up in a Christian home can probably relate to this there There are different times where you need to evaluate and you're you're not even capable of evaluating uh in the same way at different Ages of your life. So if you're here today and you're in junior high or high school, you're listening to me say, evaluate yourself to see if you're in the faith. Well, as a teenager, as you're thinking about that, I guarantee you you're going to think differently about this command when you're out of college, when you're older, when you're more mature, you have a different perspective. You're going to evaluate in a different way. But it's legitimate to evaluate no matter where you are in life. Whether you're in elementary school right now hearing these words or in junior high or high school or college or you've been walking with Jesus for 70 years. Just stop where you are and evaluate in light of where God has you in life. That's going to be helpful. I've heard two testimonies in the last two weeks of people telling me that, hmm, yeah, I grew up in the church and now I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Or, I thought I was... A... Actually, no. Changed that three in the last three weeks. I grew up in the church. Thought I was a Christian my whole life. Never even really questioned it. And then when I got into late high school, high school college was confronted with different things and for the first time in my life I started to ask the question, am I even a Christian? So, like I said, this is not out of the ordinary. But you know what? That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. I'm glad those kind of people are thinking about spiritual things and asking spiritual questions as opposed to being so callous and cold. They're not even asking those questions. They don't even care. That's bad. So to be asking the questions is actually a good and healthy sign. There's some life there. There's some conviction there. Holy Spirit is working on a conscience there. But every Christian needs to be doing this. And what we need to focus on is spirituality. And, uh, three areas of spirituality. I think at first it needs to start where Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. That just simply means at face value, are you a Christian? And when you evaluate yourself to ask you, are you a Christian? Where you need to start is, what is the gospel? Do you even know the content of the gospel? This is where I start anytime I do a baptism. And it doesn't matter how old the person is that wants to get baptized. Why do you want to get baptized? Oh, because uh, the Bible says to get baptized. Okay. And then I ask them, what is the gospel? Because if you don't know the gospel, then you can't believe in the gospel. And if you don't believe in the gospel, you can't be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you shouldn't get baptized. So, content of the gospel. Start there, evaluate yourself. Do I understand the gospel? What is the gospel? Uh, If you could distill it down in two paragraphs, paragraphs, what would you say? The question I like to ask people when they're getting baptized, okay, say you had a neighbor or a friend or a colleague at work, and they're a total pagan. They got to know you and they want to become a Christian. And they ask you, how can I become a Christian? You've got two paragraphs. What are you going to tell them about how they can become a Christian? And if it includes any kind of works, be good, go to church, do good, whatever, then you don't understand the Gospel. The Gospel, good news, has and getting saved, getting forgiven sin, Getting in a right relationship with God has nothing to do with what we do. Because we can't do enough, can we? It has nothing to do with what we do. It is all what Jesus did on our behalf. So that's the two paragraphs of your gospel. It's everything Jesus did. The only thing about us is we've got to recognize that we're sinful. We need to turn from our sin. We need God's forgiveness. He's the only one who can forgive. Jesus is the only way to get there. And Jesus is the one that provided the work that allows me to get to heaven. It's all about Jesus. So I've got to recognize I am a sinner. I need to repent of my sin. I need God to save me from my sin. And he does that on the basis that Jesus, who was the God-man, came down into this world, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life as the God-man, never sinned, and willingly went to the cross, died on a cross, and while He was hanging on the cross, was being punished by God the Father from heaven with the full fury of God's holy hatred towards sin, was punishing Jesus on the cross for the sins of the world and anybody who believed in Jesus as the savior then Jesus died as your substitute god the father was punishing you through Jesus on the cross so your sins were taken care of and punished by god who hates sin when jesus got punished 2000 years ago and then jesus and jesus didn't deserve that because he never sinned and he was god in a body god the son never did anything wrong but willingly died for sinners like you and me and then he was buried in fulfillment of the Scriptures, rose again from the dead, in fulfillment of the Scriptures, ascended on high, reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, and is seeking to save sinners today. Is calling out to them, convicting them, getting the Word of God out to them through the work of the Holy Spirit, the church, Christians, Scripture, the Gospel. And He's wooing people to Himself today. That's the Gospel. That's how people get saved today. It's all about what Jesus did for sinners. Nothing about what we do. The only thing we do is confess our sin and ask God to save us when we have clear understanding of the Gospel. So, that's where it starts evaluating yourself. Do I know the Gospel? Question number one. And then, do I believe the Gospel when I have the accurate contents? Do I still believe that? Or did I believe it just when I was growing up at my house? And it's okay to rededicate yourself and recommit yourself. It's a good thing. As our understanding changes and grows with time. So, Just start there. Focus on areas of spirituality starting with the Gospel. But that phrase, in the faith, is even broader than that in several passages in the New Testament. So it it doesn't just include the Gospel message in your salvation. It also includes sanctification, the faith, and all the body of doctrine in the Bible according to Jude 3. And so that's the other thing we need to evaluate ourselves in terms of spiritual issues is not just our salvation, but also our attitudes, our beliefs, our desires, our thought patterns, the inside we need to evaluate ourselves. How we think, what we think. That's more difficult to do. Because that's subjective. And we need help. We need to be honest. It's hard to be honest with ourselves. Over the years, the best way that I have found this, and to make it as objective as possible, is I like to go to Galatians 5. So let's go there. And we'll do this together quickly. But you can do it more exhaustively and thoroughly in your own time before God or sometimes it's even good to meditate and even memorize Galatians chapter 5 uh, and the applicable verses starting at verse 19 we'll read verse 19 to the end of the chapter in Ephesians chapter or Galatians chapter 5 Galatians 5 starting at verse 19 again we're examining ourselves in light of this passage. So don't start thinking about your mother in law your neighbor or some Christian in the church as we are reading this passage right now. Think about yourself. We are evaluating ourselves. Oh, look at me. You look at yourself while we're doing this, okay? And we are fulfilling these biblical requirements. We're going to judge ourselves with regularity. We're going to use God's priority as a standard, which is Scripture. That's Galatians 5. Uh, We're going to focus on areas of spirituality, and those are the ones delineated by Paul here in Galatians 5. So here's a common thing that I do in my own life to evaluate spirituality in my life. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Where do I stand in light of God's spiritual standard, starting at verse 19? Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Now the deeds, the flesh means a sinful attitude. Sinfulness. Now the manifestations of sin in our life are evident. They are clear. And we see them through actions and attitudes. Actions, attitudes, and words. And Paul lists what some of those are. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Here they are. Here, evaluate. You want a standard. Here's the standard. Take your life, your attitude, the words that come out of your mouth, and evaluate it with the following words. Am I? Immorality. Pornia. Pornography. Immorality. That's that word. Sexual Sin. What kind of sexual impurity and sexual sin do I have in my life right now and on a regular ongoing basis? And then investigate, evaluate your own life. Impurity. Sensuality. Having to do with lusts in your life. Illegitimate attractions. I mean, you can literally do these one by one. Uh, verse 20, idolatry. What are the things I love in life more than I love God or Jesus? And to be honest, and getting to the root of that is, what do I desire more than I desire Jesus' Word and prayer with Him? Well, it could be video games, materialism. I mean, on and on the list goes. We are all prone to idolatry. Sorcery. Now, the next word, enmities goes with the next several words. enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings all have one thing in common and are related by one thing. They all have to do how you interact with other people. That is huge. Notice that that is uh, probably the emphasis in this entire thing. How you relate to other people. Boy, talk about evaluating yourself. Sit down, be honest, and think about how you relate to other Christians in general. Starting in your own family, your own marriage, uh, your own siblings, and then the local church. Because that's what all of those words have in common. enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and because you do all of that in the context as you interrelate with other people. And if on a regular basis uh, you find yourself that you are enmity while wow, you're mad at somebody, strife, you can't get along with somebody, jealous, self-explanatory, outbursts of anger as you're arguing with people, disputing with people, dissensions, those are uh, divisions, Factions, those are little spiritual cliques that we have in the church that we identify with to undermine the church. Our little factions. Very few like-minded people that we all agree. Here, here's the problems in the church and here's the problems with these people and we all agree and that's a faction. Very dangerous, divisive. Uh, and then 21, envying. Wanting something that somebody else has. Those all have to do with relating to other people. So that's a great way to evaluate yourself and just think, wow, God, where am I at in all of these? Am I doing all this? This Is this how I relate to other people? Can't we all just get along? Famous quote. That's what Paul's emphasizing there. And then he goes on, other things to evaluate ourselves. Drunkenness, you know, do you have a problem? There are people who are susceptible to getting drunk. Uh, and even people who become Christians, and that's a weakness, and so you've got to monitor that, you know, whether you totally subs- abstain 100% and whatever, and you've got to watch that. Uh, carousing and things like these. So those are the negatives. So there's, there needs to be a negative evaluation and a positive evaluation. Then in a positive, positively evaluating our spiritual life, Paul gives us in verse 22, uh, but the middle of verse 21, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, who do these things on a regular ongoing basis, as a habit of a lifestyle is the point of emphasis, who do these things, routinely and as a matter of fact, enjoy doing these things, they won't enter the kingdom of God because they're not Christians. But you, on the other hand, verse twenty two, shouldn't be doing those things. And now, here's the positive things we evaluate ourselves about. Verse twenty two but the fruit of the Spirit, if we're walking in the Spirit, in obedience to the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, where we should be, or at least pursuing it's the right direction, not perfection of your life, but direction of your life. And you can literally take these one by one. Love. Is my life uh, typified by love? Love for God, but love for people. Or am I hypercritical of people? Do I love people? That's just something that a Christian should ask basically every day. We've got to evaluate ourselves. Uh, peace. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Love joy. Joy speaks of contentment in the Lord. Am I a content person or a discontent person? Am I a positive person or a negative person? And specifically joy, do I have joy in the Lord? Because you can have joy in the Lord no matter what is going on in your life. That doesn't mean you don't have true emotions. But ultimately, in the end, you, your joy comes from God and God alone. That eternal, unchanging joy. So, we're evaluating ourselves in a lot of these biblical virtues. Love, joy, peace. That's peace getting along with other people. If you're a Christian who's typified by always being cantankerous and not getting along with people, Houston, you've got a problem. Uh, red alert. We've got problems. Evaluate yourself. Why is that? Because that should not be true. Christians should get along with Christians. Christians should love Christians. By this, the world will know that we're Jesus' disciples if we love one another, which means living in peace and harmony with one another. It's basic. Patience. That's patience with other people. Not just patience in circumstances, patience with people. I have a hard time with that person. Too bad. The spiritual virtue that you need God's supernatural help with is having a long fuse with that person. And that's part of the Greek word, a long fuse. Patience. Because God had patience with us as sinners, didn't He? Kindness. kindness. This is proactive. This isn't just refraining from doing bad things. This is going out sacrificially and doing things that bless other people, deliberately, kindly. And this can be an action, this can be an attitude, this can be even the way a word is spoken. Goodness. This is doing something to benefit the other person. This goes along hand in hand with kindness. Faithfulness. This is huge. Are you consistent? Do you follow through? Do you stick in there long term? Faithfulness. Do you show up when you're supposed to? Do you do what you're supposed to do without excuses? Are you committed? Boy, this is good and appropriate for the church to hear. Are we faithful? Are we in it for the long haul? We are not in a a, a sprint. We are in a marathon in the Christian life and in the local church. Are we loyal? Do we hang in there? Do we persevere, seeing the big picture? Not looking down on our feet. Looking ahead at the goal. The Lord Jesus Christ. Gentleness. How we talk to other people. How we relate to other people. Calmly. In control. Uh, self-control is the last one. Discipline over all of our desires. Boy, I find this to be one of the hardest ones. Self-control in every area of life. Self-control of the thought life. The desires. Food. Food how we manage our time. Uh, That's quite a challenge. Against such things, there is no law. So I would just put that before you. If you want a a very practical strategy of how to routinely evaluate yourself, is look at your life in light of Galatians chapter 5. Looking at areas of spirituality. Okay, let's go on to number four. Uh, After we have been doing this discipline of evaluating ourselves in an ongoing, regular basis, whether it's in prayer or whatever, doing it with regularity, we're using the Word of God so more and more uh, we're seeing the truth being exposed in our life of maybe things we hadn't seen before and all these weaknesses. And we're focusing on areas of spirituality. Asking, do I know Jesus Christ? Am I committed to Him? Am I growing in Him? Am I stagnant? Am I compromising? Do I have secret areas of hidden sin in my life that I'm holding on to and I don't want to relinquish? And then we're honest and we're asking the Holy Spirit uh, to expose us. God, help me expose hidden faults that I might have as the psalmist prayed then you might see those things. And as you do see those things, be honest, identify those, and then do number four, and that's confess your shortcomings very specifically. Confess. Confess in the New Testament means to say the same thing. To literally speak up the actual scenario of how it corresponds to reality. That's what confess means. To tell it like it is. Here's what's going on in my life. And then you speak up and you say, this is exactly what's going on. You're not. In other words, it's saying the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Not hiding anything, you're not putting a spin on it. That's what confess means. So, this means you've got to speak up. Literally. So, this is part of evaluation. Confess your shortcomings, and I put specifically, because anybody can say, Oh, dear God, forgive me, I'm a sinner, which is, from the heart, can be very legitimate and sincere. And God knows our heart, doesn't He? He knows all things. He searches the heart. So he does no thing. But I also think it's a good discipline to be very specific about certain sins to confess those to God, to lay them before Him. God, I've got a lack of self-control over my tongue and my mouth as I interact with my family. God, help me with my tongue. I can't control myself. Please, Holy Spirit, first of all, forgive me for sinning that way and then empower me to change. That's what I mean by specific. Uh, Look at Psalm 32. This is a great psalm because uh, here the psalmist gets very specific about confessing his sin, doing self-evaluation, using the standard of the Word of God, and then he confesses to God. Actually, we're going to look at uh, Psalm 32 for the next two points, point five four and point five. So confessing shortcomings specifically. I did put Proverbs 28.13 there. A great verse, pretty powerful. The one who conceals his transgression will not prosper. The one who's trying to hide his sin in his life, you're not going to prosper. You want you're either going to get caught, or God already knows about it. You ain't fooling Him. You are going to reap consequences for that sin, whether anybody knows about it or not. The consequences are coming, or are already already there. And your sin will find you out. So that's what that verse means when it says. The one who conceals his transgressions or sins will not prosper. You're not going to succeed. It's not going to do any good, so just give it up. Rather, but, instead of trying to hide and conceal all your sins, uh, but the one who confesses, admits them, and forsakes them. See, it's not just admitting that you're doing but it's forsake God. I don't want anything to do with it. And God, forgive me and help me change. Call it what it is. Uh, the one who confesses and forsakes them, get this, will find compassion. And the first place you're going to find compassion is from God. But look at Psalm 32 as the psalmist David confesses very specifically his sin. Uh, this could very well be a time where he compromised with Bathsheba, committed adultery. Uh, there was a pregnancy as a result of that. And David is hiding this sin for almost a year from everybody, including his good friend and personal counselor that God used as a prophet in his life. And then finally, after about a year, he got convicted, couldn't hold it anymore, and he, he confessed his sin. So here's David, in retrospect, writing that experience of trying to hide his sin for an entire year and how it weighed him down with guilt. Uh, God crushed him. How blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. What a blessing. Isn't it a blessing to have forgiven sin? What a blessing to be washed as white as snow, uh, totally clean from God, all of your sins washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ. How blessed and glorious is that? Verse 2, how blessed is the man or the woman or the child who is a believer whom the Lord, Yahweh, does not impute iniquity. He's not going to hold you accountable for your sin. Even when you get into heaven, it's gone. It's forgotten. And whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse 3, here's David, when I kept silent about my sin, when I was trying to hide my sin, my body wasted away. See, he felt guilt to the point that it was so bad and so literal it became physical. He got sick physically from guilt through my groaning all day long his conscience was just bothering him 24/7 verse 4 for day and night god's hand was heavy upon me see god is god loves david and god is chastening david and god is hounding david till he relents confess day and night god was heavy upon david david's vitality was drained away his physical strength was sapped this happens to christians why wow, I'm gloomy, why wow, I'm depressed, why wow, I have no energy, why wow, well one of the things we got to think about, well do you have sin in your life that's unconfessed? That's always an option. My vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer finally verse 5. Keep in mind this was a year later. And a lot of heartache, I acknowledged my sin to God. And by the way, that's where we do it first. We got to confess our sins to God first and foremost, and that's what David also prayed. Against you and you alone have I sinned. To God. I acknowledge my sin to God. My iniquity I didn't try to hide anymore. I said I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh. And God did forgive the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to You, God, in a time when You may be found. In other words, David saying, don't wait a year before you confess your sin. Surely in a time... Uh, Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. Sometimes we just wait too late and the flood comes and then you ask for a lifeline. Too late, don't do that. So David is trying to instruct us from his own personal experience. Uh, And also Psalm 51 I mentioned. And then also you can go into the Old Testament story as well where David's friend gets him to confess his sin. Specifically that he committed adultery. And also that he sinned against Uriah specific sins before god tell them to god you don't need to write out a whole list of all your gory gross sickening sins on a piece of paper and give it to all your friends please pray for me and forgive me no that is not good ephesians 5 says don't do that don't do that but confess your sins specifically to god ask for his forgiveness and then don't journal it either here's all the sins i committed today and then you keep it in your journal don't don't journal your sins uh, allow them to be forgiven and washed away that, like God does from as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. I don't want to remember what I was like ten years ago. Yucky! I'm surprised my wife is still married to me. But anyway, you can laugh. It's good. Uh, but don't do that. We will, Our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ for all time. Oh, another specific example of sin being confessed is in Joshua 7.19 where Achan, that guy when uh, Israel was going into the city, to take it and Achan took stuff he shouldn't have taken and he took some gold and a jacket and all that fancy stuff and he buried it in his tent. And God said, don't do that. And he did it anyway. And then Israel lost the war and then uh, Joshua's trying to figure out, God, why did we lose? And then God said, because one person compromised and broke the ban and sinned here in your congregation of your two million people and that person needs to fess up. And so Joshua goes through... Uh, group by group until finally he hones in on this family of Achan. And then he finally hones it down to Achan, uh, the Jewish man, and Achan is convicted. And then Joshua just points his finger in his face and says, Achan, give glory to God and confess your sin. And Achan did. He confessed it very specifically. God forgave the nation as a result of Achan's sin. But that's an example of being specific about your sin and laying it before God. Uh, so we need to confess shortcomings specifically. Number five, seek God's forgiveness deliberately. So it's not just confessing sin, but it's also, if you're a believer, the exchange is you get God's forgiveness. 100%. Even if you continue to be, uh, harassed by your sins from the past, God is, if you're a believer, God has forgiven that sin. I don't care what your sin is. If it was adultery, some sexual sin, an abortion, or whatever it was, if you are in Christ, you cannot allow your conscience, your memory, your guilt, Satan, the accuser, to continue to harass you and harangue you and hold your forgiven sins over your head because they have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. That is the good news. That is the Gospel. That is the distinctive and the greatness about Christianity and the one true God. Seek God's forgiveness deliberately. Go back to uh, Psalm 32, and then I want you to have your finger in Isaiah 55. Psalm 32. So he's confessing his sin in verses 1 through 5. Then he starts talking about the benefit of confessing your sin in verse 5, and he accentuates the benefit basking in the forgiveness of God in verse 6, 7, and 11. We're not only. Sin was forgiven, but the guilt that plagues us is dealt with by God. Verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to God in a time when you can be found. And It's talking about praying about your sins. Asking God for forgiveness. Verse 7, God, You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. God, You surround me with the songs of deliverance. See, He was delivered from His sin. He's delivered from the guilt of His sin. And He is celebrating and basking in the forgiveness that God Offers the believer in an ongoing fashion. And then he concludes with this great crescendo in verse 11. Be, Christian, be glad in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. You righteous ones. Isn't that an amazing statement? Because this guy David was as dirty and sinful as could be at the beginning of the Psalm because of his sin. And at the end he is considered a righteous one. A pure and pristine, sinless one legally before Almighty God. Isn't that amazing? What a transformation. We need to think about that. Meditate on that. Own that reality. Forgiven in Jesus Christ of all of our sins, including the guilt that goes with us. That's why you can be glad. Go home, Christian, today and be glad. If you know Jesus, be glad. Be glad and notice it's in the Lord. It's in Jesus. His death and resurrection on your behalf. His shed blood that is still flowing for us. Rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy. All you who are upright in heart, shout for joy. It's okay to say "Amen" out loud in church. Apparently, according to that verse, in light of the great truths of the gospel. That's awesome. Look at Isaiah 55, little verse, uh, kind of hidden away here in this great chapter that teaches the same truth. Isaiah 55, starting at verse six, verse six and seven. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Now, the context here is if you're a sinful, pathetic, vile, reprobate of a loser. This is who he's talking to. Seek the Lord, you pathetic sinner. Seek him deliberately. Don't run from him. Run to him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. What do you mean, while he may be found? Well, while you have a softened heart. And don't turn away from Him. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way. That's not just an unbeliever. That's Christians who are compromising through sin. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. See, this is confessing our sin to God, seeking Him deliberately. And get this, and let Him return to the Lord. And here's the promise. And He will have compassion on Him. I'll say it this way. And He will have compassion on you. He will have compassion on you. So, seek, confess your sins specifically. Seek God's forgiveness deliberately. Own that forgiveness. Bask in being one of His children that He loves. Let's go on to number six. And a part of this um, is number six. Moving forward, after we do all this stuff, we need to welcome accountability from other believers into our life. Welcome accountability as you're evaluating yourself. Because we are not, like I said, we are biased towards ourselves. Uh, It's hard to be honest with ourselves. It's also hard to break old habits, isn't it? As a matter of fact, if if I don't have somebody in my life holding me accountable, there are some habits I just can't shake or break. And that's true of all of us. So say we are convicted, some sin is exposed, or a pattern of a lifestyle is exposed. We might need help and accountability. We might need somebody to intrude in our life and hold us accountable in that very specific area. Uh, God, I don't want to cuss anymore. That was, that was one I had a desire in my heart when I was in 8th grade or 7th grade. I wasn't even a Christian. I just knew it was bad. I was a part of a religion and that religion said cussing is bad. So I felt guilty. And so me and my friend, we were accountable with each other. And every time one of us cussed, we had rubber band, we'd snap ourselves. We'd get to snap the other guy. So you're actually wanting the guy to cuss, which is not good. Psh, psh, psh. Uh, but guess That did not work. I was not a Christian. The rubber band thing didn't work. Uh, you need to be a believer. You need to have the Spirit of God in your life. And you also need to have other believers in your life holding you accountable very specifically. Hence, the one another's all over the New Testament. Do this to one another, and this to one another, and this to one another. There's a reason because the body of Christ needs to live interdepend- interdependently with one another because we need each other as the body of Christ. That's why James says, confess your sins to one another. That doesn't mean to everybody, but maybe you're married and you confess your sin to your wife. Your wife or your spouse is a, is a one another. Or maybe it's to your children or whoever. It starts with the person you sinned against. But actually it starts with God first. Confess your sins to one another they can hold you accountable. Proverbs 8.28.13 uh, Again, the one who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses, telling another person, and forsakes will find compassion. So when you're telling another person about your sin, they can hold you accountable as you're trying to run this race for Jesus Christ. And we need to welcome accountability in the power of the Spirit with the treasure of His Word in the context of the local church, all for God's glory. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for our time together as a church, as fellow saints, as the body of Christ, Thank You for the reminders from Scripture, Lord. It's amazing how the Apostle Paul lives on. Even though he's in heaven and we're on earth, we still hear His words loud and clear, resounding in our minds and resonating. We trust in our hearts through the work of Your Holy Spirit convicting us, calling us today to examine ourselves before You, to prove ourselves in light of the faith that we profess. God, help us to be objective. Help us to be biblical. Bring other people in our life to accomplish that goal. Keep us on the straight and narrow. We need your grace, help, and mercy in the process, Father. And thank you most of all for ongoing forgiveness of sin that we have in the crucified, risen, and living Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.